Chapter 13 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 At the word, the four men with simultaneous movement made their rush forward. It was done so quickly that their enemies had not time to get in even a shot. Hold as you be, shouted the trapper to his companions. Hold as you be and lie close. The rush was a good un. If that half-breed shows a butt of his elbow again like that, muttered the trapper, interrupting his address to his companions, he'll wear splinters for a month. The rush was a good un, repeated he. You jumped at the word and they never got in a shot. Lord Henry, you went into the little hazel bushes as a rabbit goes into the thicket when it sees the shadow of a hawk on the grass, and the rush of his wings be in his ears. Move as far as you can to the right, boy and see if he can't take him in the flank. The crack of a piece from the big beach on the knoll would start him like ducks out of the sedge when the shots splash round him. Yes, boy, practice the gifts of your crawling and get on the flank of the rogues. Then pick the man that suits you least and get it to him. I don't tell you to kill him, but let the lead get into him reasonably deep that he may learn the opinion the Lord has of his devilments. Don't touch the half-breed, boy. He's been on my trail for this seven year, and atween stealing my furs and traps and burning two shanties that I'm certain of, and ambushing me four times for my death, and a dozen shots more or less he's fired at me off and on, there's a good many figures on the slate, and I conceit the time has come to wipe him out. The Lord knows, continued the old man, that I've been considerate in the matter considering my gifts, or he'd have died long ago. But I held back because of the lad, and because of his reading in the book, which said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I conceded that perhaps the Lord would attend to the vagabond himself. But the lad mistook the meaning of the verses, or the Lord himself be a little slow, for he has certainly kept on with his deviltry, and there's but one thing that will stop him. Mr. Carson, said the old man, speaking to his companion on the left, the boy is crawling and doing it well, for he's covered his back with moss. And a big tuft of the earth he has fitted to his head, and he looks flatter than a rib shingle. Yes, he be doing it well, for he be moving inch by inch, and though he be in range of their bullets, yet he's crawling as slow as a snail. But it be just as well that the vagabond shouldn't look that way too much, so if you can see a bit of flannel or a muzzle of a gun, crack away at it for your pistol load's easy, and the law pays for your ammunition. Yes, fire away, Mr. Carson, and keep their eyes this way, for if the boy reaches the big beach on the knoll, he'll sweep the line and put him up like quail from a thicket, for two barrels of the right sort with a steady man back of him can uncover the best ambushment ever made, and if the boy gets to the beach unhurt, you'll see the rogues racing through the swale, like the beasts over the plains when the fire and wind be behind them. Even before he was done speaking, the detective had twice found a target, and twice had his bullets gone straight to the mark. The trapper had scarcely done speaking before his rifle too cracked, and a sharp cry that came from the opposing line showed that the bullet had at least touched the flesh. The knave is a fool, muttered the trapper as he poured the powder into the barrel to let his hand show its width beyond the bark when he be loading his piece in an ambushment. He's two fingers less than he had this morning for certain, and that's a comfort. Aye, aye, I see, Mr. Carson, the boy's got to cover. 
You'll hear his piece in a minute. Boy, shouted the trapper to the Yankee under the bank. We'll have him in motion in a minute. When the knaves get to running, they never stop unless you stop them. So make yourself sure of the Blackmore if you want your fun. Mr. Carson, said the trapper, speaking to the detective, as he gathered himself for the rush that he felt would be occasioned by the explosion of Henry's piece. You say the law's on our side, and if they ain't shot here, they'll be hung in Canada, so it doesn't matter much what happens to the vagabonds, and I shan't be over-careful when I draw on them in the rush. But there be a young man among them that oughtn't to be there. He has his sins beyond doubt, but he be in this devilment by chance. His name is Dick Raymond, and his business be gambling. But I've heard his voice and seen his face and felt his hand, and that's why I tell you the girl in the tent has been kept safe from harm, and his shooting counts mightily in his favor. Now, said the old man as he brushed some fine dust from his eyes, that the bullet from the gambler's pistol as it bored its way through the bark within two inches of the trapper's head had cast into them. Now, said the old man, that was the boy's bullet, and you see he shoots judiciously, for he'd got the range and calculated my height to an inch and noted where my head ought to be. Yes, his shooting be in his favor, and when the rush comes and we have him in full jump and we ourselves be uncovered, keep your eye on Dick Raymond, for the boy has his wicked side and he shoots quick and close. But if you get him in the line, don't let your lead get into the vitals. Leastwise I shan't, for the boy be worth saving. There it is, cried the trapper as Herbert's piece exploded from the beach on the knoll, and a yell of pain followed the explosion. There, shouted the old man, it goes again, and there, as I concede, it goes the enemy too. Now, Mr. Carson, yelled the trapper as he sprang from behind his tree, never mind your cover. The swiftest foot and the quickest eye wins the scrimmage when the ambushment is uncovered and the knaves get a-running. The result was precisely what the trapper had predicted. The position of Herbert commanded the entire line of the gang and took them in flank. The young man had spared the lives of the two he had singled out, but both were wounded, and both in the same manner and to the same extent, for the right arm of each hung powerless at his side, and their rifles had dropped to the ground. The rush that the entire party made for the swale and the balsam thicket beyond was such as men make when they feel themselves overmatched and in peril. The pursuit of the one party was as headlong as the retreat of the other was precipitate. Once the rifle of the trapper sounded, and the half-breed dropped as it cracked, but recovered his feet in an instant and rushed onward, apparently unhurt. Beyond the balsam thicket the gambler made his stand. Carson, the detective, was in full pursuit, and as he burst through the balsams he found himself within twenty feet of his antagonist. Both men stood for an instant, each with a pistol in his hand, each looking full at the other. Both were experts, each knew the other. You count, said the gambler coolly. One, two, three, said the detective. Fire! One pistol alone sounded. The gamblers had failed to explode. You've won. You need a deal again, said the gambler, and then he dropped. The red stain on his white shirt front showed where he was hit. There's some lint and a bandage, said the detective, and he flung a small package into the gambler's lap. I hope you won't die, Dick Raymond. Oh, it was all fair, Carson, said the other carelessly. I've held a poor hand from the start. 
He paused, for the detective had rushed on, and he was alone. Twenty rods further on, the detective caught up with the trapper, who was calmly recharging his piece. On the edge of the ledge above, the half-breed lay dead, the lips drawn back from his teeth, and his ugly countenance distorted with hate and rage. A rifle whose muzzle smoked lay at his side, and the edge of the trapper's left ear was bleeding. "'I've shot Dick Raymond by the balsam thicket,' said the detective. "'I'm afraid he's hard hit.' "'I'll go and see the boy,' answered the trapper. "'You'll find Henry further up. "'There's only two running, and he can bring him in.' "'The detective disappeared like a flash "'in the direction the trapper had pointed. "'Ah, me,' said the old man. "'I hope the boy isn't bad hit.' "'And he turned on his trail "'and moved quickly down toward the balsam thicket. "'The gambler was seated in a reclining attitude, "'his body resting on the mosses, his shoulders and head supported by a rock which, covered thickly with other mosses itself, made for his growing weakness a natural pillow. The package of lint which the detective had thrown to him as he dashed away after the fatal interview lay within reach unopened. Only a stain on the white linen showed where he was hit, for the hemorrhage was all internal. Through the trees, here and there, the bright water of the lake showed clearly, the little rivulet that issued from the trapper's spring ran with tuneful gurgling through the swale and filtered itself into the lake through sands pure as its own limpid stream. In the pines overhead were soothing noises. The young balsams yielded their gummy sweetness to the damp air. The pistol, by whose failure to explode he had escaped the crime of murder, lay by his side, while a dozen cards that had been flung from his pocket as he dropped were lying scattered about, a suggestive commentary on the frivolity and sinfulness of his life. His eyes were open, gazing through the branches of the intervening trees at the bright patches of the shining water beyond, and the little rills soothed the stillness with its lasping sound. One would hardly think that so unprincipled a life could come to its close so peacefully as peacefully as the peacefulness of nature which, because of its inanimateness, perhaps, had committed no sin, and could therefore be disturbed by no remorse. But such apparently was the case, for the look in the eyes was as placid as the lake at which they gazed, and the lines of his face were as calm and peaceful as a child's, when, just before he falls asleep, his memory is busy with the happiness of the day he has enjoyed, and to which, ere he sleeps, he would say a pleasant farewell." The old trapper saw as he descended the hill the body reclining on the mosses at the edge of the balsam thicket. The earth gave back no sound as he advanced, and he reached the gambler and was standing almost at his very feet ere the young man was aware of his presence. But as the form of the trapper passed between him and the shining water, he turned his gaze up to the trapper's face and, after studying the grave lines for a moment, said, "'You've won the game, old man.' The trapper for a moment made no reply. He looked steadfastly into the young man's countenance, fixed his eyes on the red stain on the left breast, and then said, Shall I look at the hole, boy? The gambler smiled pleasantly and nodded his head, saying, It's a natural thing to do in these cases, I believe. Lifting his hands, he unbuttoned the collar and unscrewed the solitaire stud from the white bosom. The trapper knelt by the young man's side and, laying back the linen from the chest, wiped the blood stain with a piece of lint from the white skin 
and carefully studied the edges of the wound, seeking to ascertain the direction which the bullet had taken as it penetrated the flesh. At last he drew his face back and lifted himself to his feet, not a shade in the expression of his face revealing his thought. Is it my last deal, old man? asked the gambler carelessly. I've seen a good many wounds, answered the trapper, and I've noted the direction of a good many bullets, and I've never knowed a man to live who was hit where ye be hit, if the lead had the slant inward as the piece had that has gone into ye. For a minute the young man made no reply. No change came to his countenance. He turned his eyes from the trapper's face and looked pleasantly off toward the water. He even whistled softly a line or two of an old love ballad. Then he paused, and, drawn perhaps by the magnetism of the steady gaze which the eyes of the trapper fixed upon him, he looked again into the old man's face and said, "'What is it, John Norton?' "'I be sorry for you, boy,' answered the old man. "'I be sorry for you, for life be sweet to the young, and I wish that your years might be many on the earth. I fancy there's a good many who'll be glad to hear I'm out of it.' was the careless response. "'I don't doubt you have your faults, boy,' answered the trapper, "'and I dare say you've lived loosely "'and did many deeds that was better undid. "'But the best use of life be to learn how to live, "'and I feel certain you'd have got better as you got older "'and made the last half of your life wipe out the first, "'so that the figures for and again you would have balanced in the judgment. "'You aren't fool enough to believe what the hypocritical church members talk, are you, John Norton? You don't believe there's any judgment day, do you? I don't know much about church members, answered the trapper, for I've never been in the settlements. Leastwise, I've never studied the habits of the creatures, and I dare say that they differ, being good and bad, and I've seen some that was certainly vagabonds. No, I don't know much about church members, but I certainly believe, yes, I know, there be a day when the Lord shall judge the living and the dead, and the honest trapper shall stand on the one side, and the vagabond that pilfers his skins and steals his traps shall stand on the other. This is what the book says, and it certainly seems reasonable, for the deeds that be did on the earth be of two sorts, and the folks that do em be of two kind, and atween the two the Lord, if he notes anything, must make a dividing line. "'And when do you think the judgment is, John Norton?' asked the gambler as if he was actually enjoying the crude but honest ideas of his companion. The trapper hesitated a moment before he spoke. Then he said, "'I can see that the judgment be always going on. It's a court that never adjourns. And the deserters and the knaves and the disobedient and the regiment be always on trial. But I can see that there comes a day to every man, good and bad.' when the record of his deeds be looked over from the start, and the good and the bad counted up. And in that day he gets the final judgment, whether it be for or against him. And now, boy, continued the old man solemnly, with a touch of infinite tenderness in the vibrations of his voice, ye be nigh the judgment day yourself, and the deeds ye have did, both good and the bad, will be passed in review. I reckon there isn't much chance for me, if your view is sound, John Norton. And for the first time his tone lost his cheerful recklessness. A court be a court of mercy, and the judge that looks upon him that comes up for trial as if he was their father. 
That ends it, old man, answered the gambler. My father never showed me any mercy when I was a boy. If he had, I shouldn't have been here now. If I did a wrong deed, I got it to the last inch of the lash, and the words were more intensely bitter because spoken so quietly. The fathers of the earth, boy, be not like the father of heaven, for I have seen him correct their children beyond reason and without mercy. They whipped in their rage and not in their wisdom. They whipped because they were strong and not because of their love. They whipped when they should have forgiven and got what they earned, the hatred of their children. But the Father of Heaven be different, boy. He knows that men be weak as well as wicked. He knows that half of them haven't had a fair chance. And so he overlooks much. And when he can't overlook it, I concede he sort of forgives in a lump. Yes, he subtracts all he can from the evil we have did, boy. And if that isn't enough to satisfy his feelings toward a man that might have been different if he had had a fair start, he just wipes the whole row of figures clean out at the asking. At the asking? said the gambler. That was a mighty quick game. Did you ever pray, John Norton? Certain, certain I be a praying man, said the trapper sturdily. At the asking, murmured the gambler softly. Certain, boy, answered the trapper. That's the line the trail takes. You can depend on it. And it will bring you to the end of the great clearing in peace. It's a quick deal, said the gambler, speaking to himself, utterly unconscious of the incongruity of his speech to his thought. It's a quick deal, but I can see that it might end, as he says, if the feeling was right. For the moment nothing was said. The trapper stood looking steadfastly at the young man on the moss, as he lay with his quiet face turned up to the sky, to whose color had already come the first shade of the awful whiteness. Up the mountain a rifle cracked. Neither stirred. A red squirrel ran out upon a limb, twenty feet above the gambler's head, and shook the silence in the fragments with his chattering, and sat gazing with startled eyes at the two men underneath. Can you pray, old man? asked the gambler quietly. Certainly, answered the trapper. Can you pray in words? asked the gambler again. For a moment the trapper hesitated. Then he said, I can't say that I can. No, I certainly can't say that I could undertake it with a reasonable chance of getting through. Leastwise, it wouldn't be in a way to help a man any. Is there... Any way, old man, in which we can go partners? asked the gambler, the vocabulary of whose profession still clung to him in the solemn counseling. I was thinking of that, answered the trapper. Yes, I was thinking if we could sort of join works and, and each help the other by doing his own part himself. Yes, continued the old man after a moment's reflection. The plan's a good un. You pray for yourself, and I'll pray for myself, and if I can get in anything that seems likely to do you service, you can count on it, as you can on a groove barrel. Now, boy, said the trapper with a sweetly solemn enthusiasm such as faith might give to a supplicating saint, which lighted his features until his countenance fairly shone with a light which came out of it, rather than upon it, from the sun overhead. Now, boy... Remember that the Lord is the Lord of the woods, as well as of the cities. 
and that he heareth the praying of the poor hunter under the pines, as well as the great preachers in the pulpits, and that when sins be heavy and death be nigh, his ear and his heart be both open. There was no use of his son's dying if the father can't be forgiven. The trapper knelt on the moss at the gambler's feet. He clasped the fingers of his great hands until they interlaced, and lifted his wrinkled face upward. He said not a word, but an eye that was watching noted that the strongly chiseled lips seemed with age moved and twitched now and then, and the same eye saw as the silent prayer went on, two great tears leave the protection of the closed lids and roll down the rugged cheek. The gambler also closed his eyes. Then his hands quietly stole one into the other, and avoiding the bloody stain rested on his breast. And thus the old man who had lived beyond the limit of man's day and the young one cut down at the threshold of mature life, the one kneeling on the mosses with his face lifted to heaven, the other lying on the mosses with his face turned toward the same sky, without word or uttered speech, prayed to the divine mercy which beyond the heaven and the sky saw the two men underneath the pines, and met, we may not doubt, with needed answer the silent upgoing prayer. The two opened their eyes nearly at the same instant. They looked for a moment at each other, and then the gambler feebly lifted his hand and put it into the broad palm of the trapper. Not a word was said. No word was needed. Sometimes men understand each other better than by talking. Then the gambler picked the diamond stud from the spot where it rested, slipped the solitaire from his finger, and said as he handed them to the trapper, there's a girl in Montreal that will like these. You will find her picture inside my vest when you bury me. Her address is inside the picture case. Will you take them to her, John Norton? She shall have them for my own hand, answered the trapper gravely. You needn't disturb the picture, John Norton, said the gambler. It's just as well, perhaps, to let it lie where it is. It's been there eight years. You understand what I mean, old man? I understand, answered the trapper solemnly. The pitcher shall stay where it is. The pistols, resumed the gambler, and he glanced at the one lying on the moss. I give to you. You'll find them true. Will you accept them? The trapper bowed his head. It is doubtful he could speak. For several minutes there was silence. The end was evidently nigh. The trapper took the gambler's hand as if it had been the hand of his own boy. Indeed, perhaps the young man had found his father at last, for surely it isn't flesh that makes fatherhood. Once the young man moved as if he would rise. Had he been able, he would have died with his arms around the old man's neck. As it was, his strength was unequal to the impulse. He lifted his eyes to the old man's face lovingly, moved his body as if he would get a little nearer, and, as a child might speak a loving thought aloud, said, I'm glad I met you, John Norton. And with the saying of the sweet words, he died. But the water gleamed as brightly through the trees as before. The little rivulet sang as tunefully, the balsams poured their odors forth with undiminished measure, and the squirrel crept with new courage from his hiding place. 
and, scampering out to the limit of the branch, poured his merry chatterings forth upon the quiet air. The trapper lifted the body of the gambler in his arms and bore him to his cabin and laid him on his own bed. Then, closing the door of the cabin, he went to the bank that overlooked the lake and sounded the two signals for the return. Perhaps an hour had passed. The old man had not noted the passage of time. He was thinking of that graver passage which a soul had made from the edge of the balsam thicket into the great unknown. Suddenly he was aware of presences, and, looking up, saw his three companions standing nigh. Save a few bruises and some slight wounds, they were unhurt. "'I'm thankful,' said the old man, "'that ye all be alive. "'It might have been different, but for your coming, Henry. "'But we were too strong for em. "'Be the vagabonds well tied. "'We have four lashed to as many trees back of the cabin,' "'answered the detective. "'The blackamoor is in the cabin by the body, "'weeping like a child.' He says his only friend is dead. The half-breed, well, you know where he is. Yes, yes, replied the trapper. He brought it on himself. I offered him terms, but the devil was in him, and I come near waiting too long, for his bullet tingled my cheek here. And the old man turned toward them the left side of his face, which the half-breed's bullet had literally grazed as it passed. So it was lead or nothing, and that settled it. And now, Mr. Carson, the scrimmage is over. What next? What next? echoed the detective. The tent on the point, and the captive in it. For two months I've followed the scamps, for I swore I'd find her before the trial came off and place her face to face with her rascally uncle. But the honors belong to you, John Norton, and your hand shall set her free, and your face shall be the first that she sees. Come, let us go. To this all eagerly assented, and in a moment the four were in the boat. Herbert had the oars, and the trapper handled the paddle, and an arrow shell raced along as if driven by steam. In less than twenty minutes they were at the point, and, running the boat in, they stepped out upon the beach. The camp was deserted, and they proceeded at once to the tent. In front of the door they paused a moment to listen. The sound as of a person moving came to their ears. They looked at each other with faces lighted with pleasure. The girl be alive and moving, for certain, said the trapper, and he laughed in his own silent, genial fashion. It'll be worth a fall's trapping to see the look in her face when she knows she's free. Shall we go in, Mr. Carson? The detective simply nodded. He was too excited to speak. The old man unbuttoned the canvas door and disappeared. The others followed. The tent was divided in the middle by a curtain that stretched from side to side. The half they stood in was empty. Not an article of furniture was even in sight. Back of the curtain was the girl. It was her private apartment. The trapper, with native delicacy, shrank from parting the folds where they lapped at the center. It was a singular position. The trapper looked at the detective interrogatively. For an instant he hesitated. His lips were actually white. Then he summoned his powers and said, I can't stand this, John Norton. For God's sake, part the curtain. The old man turned toward the drapery. He took a step forward. He stretched out his hand. His fingers almost touched the cloth, but his hand went no farther. 
A sound as of a person rising from a chair was heard within, then a step, slow and heavy, moved toward them. Then a hand grasped the curtain from within, and with a quick motion drew the clinging folds apart, and a man, tall of stature, noble of aspect, and with a beard white as snow, stood before them. God in heaven, who is this? It was the detective that spoke. Then he staggered against the side of the tent for support. The Yankee gave one look, and with a face white as chalk and hair actually lifting, turned and dove out of the tent. For a minute not a word was said. The face of Herbert, under the pressure of the awful surprise, tightened, and the knit look of the features showed the tremendous effort of will he was making. But he moved not a step, and he spoke not a word. The trapper, who was in front of his companions and actually within an arm's length of the apparition, for so he might in truth be regarded, had stood the supreme test unflinchingly. For not a muscle of his face moved, nor a motion of his body followed the sudden appearance, as if in deference to the other's dignity and age, he lifted his hat from his head, but beyond this he remained unmoved. Gentlemen, said the man, May I know the reason that I have the honor of your visit? And he spoke with a quiet courtesy that denotes the polished gentleman. We thought you was a prisoner, answered the trapper. I am a prisoner, answered the man. He certainly ain't the one we expected to find, responded the trapper. But if you was a prisoner, ye ain't one now, for the vagabonds that had you in their power are prisoners themselves, and we be friends and this be the officer of the law, and he pointed to the detective. I thank you for your good intentions, gentlemen, answered the strange being. But your services came too late, I fear. I have been a prisoner for twenty years. The man's word were spoken with a tone and manner that carried conviction with them. The trapper, astonished at the revelation, exclaimed, Friend, who be ye that has been a prisoner for twenty years? The man looked the trapper steadily in the face a moment, and answered, I am a man whom nobody knows. End of chapter 13